Hello everyone and welcome to this, the final Treza Crowd of the year. My name is David and this is a podcast that gives me the incredible opportunity to speak to those wonderful humans that are dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. This month we head down to the south coast of Devon to speak to an artist and printmaker who says to draw is not only to measure and to put down, it is also to receive, if and only if the mind and its desires can be still enough to allow the period of drawing to reach an intensity of looking, one becomes aware of an equally intense energy coming toward one. Sarah Gillespie is a Royal West of England academician and a highly successful oil painter of natural landscapes. But Sarah, having experienced this intensity of looking, as she calls it, recently turned her career on its head to focus upon the art form of mezzotint printing and a creature that she describes as deeply unloved. Moths. All will become clear. So, without further ado, and please excuse the occasional background noise from power tools that do not appreciate the art form of talking about mezzotint moths, this is Trees a Crowd, and this is the incandescent Sarah Gillespie. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Starting with the most recent, as opposed to starting at the beginning, which is a fine way to start, the most recent thing that I'm just finishing up at the moment, I was asked to be artist-in-residence at the David Attenborough Building by the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. And so they are they're a really interesting organisation that is committed to working in a cross-disciplinary man- manner mm-hmm. with artists and scientists. And the David Attenborough building is right in the middle of the university. And in that building is the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, who are the people who, if you don't know, who I'm sure you do know, but they are the people who are responsible for the red data book rules, the research, and everything to do with that. And this is the book that highlights how extinct things are, or how likely to yeah. become extinct they are. So yeah. I can't remember the order, but it goes from vulnerable, like, um, in, of least concern, at most concern, the, vulnerable, near threatened, extinct. vulnerable, yeah. endangered, critically endangered, critically endangered, possibly extinct, regionally extinct, functionally extinct, extinct. It's horrible. Sure. And that's what they are—a body of extraordinary people um, doing that, collecting that data and, and research. Anyway, so the point was to go and. I'd been looking at moths for sort of 10 or so years and making images of moths and I was asked to go now and look at moths that were endangered. And I was asked also if I would work with the University Museum of Zoology, which is sort of next door, same sort of building. Mm. Fabulous, fabulous museum. But the interesting thing about the CCI is they are constituted to work in a cross-disciplinary fashion. Their whole premise is that they, they want to work with people from all kinds of disciplines. And the young... MPhil students who are doing MPhils in um, Anthropocene studies and um, conservation leadership and things like that, who Mm. were some of the most fabulously interesting people I met, I have to say, these mid-20-something, the energy, wonderful. They completely get it. They completely get it. They they are 
an extraordinary young woman that I spoke to who had been working most of her 20s in the Democratic Republic of Congo and she'd gone out to work with Ebola, I think, and had ended up negotiating with warlords, sure. basically. I guess, I hope that's not an incorrect thing to say, but uh, basically... Chief general some kind Yeah, of. she'd gone out and she'd ended up. And, and I said, how did, how did that happen? And wasn't that terrifying? She said, no, because you can't, unless you get some, you cannot deal with these zootic diseases or deal with them or begin to understand these serious threats that we have in terms of disease unless you get some cultural traction. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that's so true here as well. And that is what I think is that they have understood. It's a practical on the floor kind of. Yeah, but it's also traction culturally. It's kind of getting in under the skin of people rather than in a way that I think the arts the arts can do. And I can't put it in a better way than that rather than... Cause I'm, Okay, so I had to do a lot of research for this project and I read... So what exactly were they asking you to do? They were asking me to look at endangered endangered moths. And then respond with printmaking or respond They with... didn't set any parameters. Oh, wow. They just said... They knew that is how I would respond. But so, I mean, I could have just written something or could have made a film. And in the end, I have just made one one print about one moth because it was overwhelming so the first thing that happened was i went in for my first few conversations with these really eminent people i mean i i spoke to the head of entomology at the university museum of zoology and i went in and i said to him you tell me what i can do for you i'm here i'm kind of the way i see it is i'm at your service mm-hmm. and he looked a little bit startled i have to say and a little bit harassed and rushed in his cramped busy office and um i said well okay so let's start this another way if i'm going to work with endangered moths do you have a particular moth that you think i should look at and he had two answers to that the first one is well sarah you could pick almost any moth in the uk they're nearly all in decline so that was really dispiriting Mm -hmm. and the other thing he was he dispirited I'd say he just looked busy under <laughs> pressure. He'd had COVID and I think his kids had had COVID and it was he was trying to deal with his teaching schedule and applying for funding. Sure. They're all applying for funding. These eminent, extraordinary researchers and they're absorbed with funding applications. Uh-huh. So we don't fund our sciences any more than we fund our arts. Anyway, that's another subject. Uh, the other thing he said to me was think in terms of habitat, not in terms of individual species. So that was interesting. And then I went and talked to the head. The but meaning by which, if you look for the habitat that you want to explore f- through seeing the change that's occurring with that, you would find the species to focus upon? or No. What he meant by that, and this is kind of relevant to thinking cross, in a cross-disciplinary way as well, it's a, it's a movement of the mind, if you like, instead of away from thinking. And I think my understanding is that this, has happened, this is happening in conservation broad, generally, mm-hmm. is instead of thinking about the individual species which does have to happen when things are absolutely in that last critically endangered yeah. cliff edge. You do have to take actions for individual species, but they are, I think I've understood this more correctly, they are now looking at whole habitats because you make the, whole, you make the habitat healthy, restore a, ha- a habitat to, to a healthy, proper state, and things will come. Build so what, it and they'll come. So what did you do? And I love the Kevin Costner quote. <laughs> what did I do? What did he do? What did you do? What did you focus on? What we, what habitat did you start to explore? Well, I didn't. I didn't do that. I didn't. I was completely... I came out of that interview quite depressed and nonplussed. I thought, <laughs> oh, God, I really don't know what I'm doing here. I feel like I'm in the way. This kind of um, 
imposter complex or sure. whatever it's called. Oh, I'm in the way, I can't do this. And I went on to my next conversation which with a man called Craig Hinton-Taylor, who's the head of the um, IUCN. So, I mean, that really senior, and he'd made half an hour of his time for me. And the first thing he said to me was, we haven't done a red list for moths. We haven't done red lists for any insects. I was like, oh gosh, the whole premise of why I'm here is false. And he said, we've, they've done mammals, they've done birds, they've done most amphibians, but mm-hmm. the taxa of insects is so enormous, no they, don't, they don't even know where to start. And there are no extinctions, really, with insects, or very, 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 very few. What's happening with insects is really interesting, and it's really hard to get your head around. It's this thinning. When we talk about an extinction of a, of a particular moth, of which there have been somewhere between 50 and 60 extinctions, of moth extinctions... Since talking, when? Since probably the beginning of the, of the 20th century, sort of okay. 1910, around there. There's been three or four that have gone this century. Sure. There have also been some that have arrived with global warming. Mm-hmm. So they're not, these aren't total extinctions. These are what are called regional extinctions. Yeah. They are no longer here because, and the, the, going back to the head of entomology, that is almost entirely in this country because we've eliminated their habitat. Where mm-hmm. we know what's happened, there's somewhere we just don't know. There was, I was talking to one person, they were saying how, in some instances, birds and moths and butterflies and the like are blessed by the fact that they have wings and can move. So if yeah. the climate shifts, yeah. Yeah. then they have the ability to yeah. try at least to find a new habitat that can yeah. support them. But they're caught in a climactic vice, I think they called it, yeah. whereby they can move and therefore essentially evolve quickly in terms of their locational yeah. specificity. But the habitats that they might looking for might be looking for might not be evolving quick enough. So... Yeah a particular kind of heather that they feed from and thus pollinate might only exist within a certain temperature range and that can't evolve and move as quick as a a bird can fly or a moth can fly. And that that vice is the problem. It's It's not as quick as just they can fly elsewhere. Yeah. And this word, this word I learned also in these, in these first weeks of phonology, Mm -hmm. the timing of things. So if you're arriving here earlier because it's warmer that's fine but the particular plant that you need or if you're a bird the particular caterpillars that you need tens of thousands of them to feed on may have already been and gone or not happened or got a disease because it was so mild over the winter they've hatched out early got some kind of horrible fungal thing and I just aren't there for Mm -hmm. it so it's that's what he was trying to say to me he was trying to say this is the, the entomology guy you can't you know you there's a very famous quote which I'll get wrong about you know you, you you try to single out one thing and you very quickly find it's attached to everything else. Yeah. So I went home initially and thought I'm out of my depth and they're far too busy and what am I going to do and um, didn't quite know what to do with myself and then I went back again and had access this was the great thing I had access to the the, the insect collection in the museum and once I'd been through this incredibly rigorous sort of being told what I could and couldn't do and how to move and how not to move and in the in the insect collection, which is all very precious. Mm-hmm. Have you been into any of those insect collections? I've been into the Natural History Museum's one. Yeah. It's amazing. They are extraordinary. But they, they've got whole drawers that they haven't got around to sourcing yes. yet, so there's just stuff. There's just stuff there's everywhere. Stuff. There is stuff. And they're like got, hoarders. They're, they're like hoarders, and there's data in the form of extraordinary journals by people exactly like you were talking about, the people on the ships, who've or people who've been collecting vicars, vicars' wives. Who were Where is it with vicars? <laughs> I was got talking time. to a wasp specialist in Natural History Museum, and, it's, and all of the sort of Victorian collectors were vicars. Yes. I guess they couldn't sort of support a big family, so they were just collecting wasps. Well, they're vicars. They're also... 
a huge number of collectors were women. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a whole untold story there of women who weren't allowed to write these things up but did collect. Sure. And, often, and then widows, wealthy widows, finally free of the burdens of childbearing and entertaining could... Uh, Finally, do what they've always wanted to do: finally do what wasps and moths and butterflies and seaweeds and all those sort of (laughs) things. So there's all there's all of that going. Anyway, this collection is completely extraordinary, and it's underneath the museum. I mean, in fact, completely fascinating. And there are all these. You know, he says, "Don't go in the corridor, or you will stay in the corridor. The door will close behind you. You will stay in the corridor until somebody finds you, and that may not be for quite a long time." And if you don't move, the lights will go out and, and you will lift the trays like this and you will not do this and you won't, and you must not use anything other than a pencil and it's strip lighting and underground. Oh. So what did you find? So I found, first of all, it was like being in a candy shop. Uh-huh. I found drawers and drawers and drawers and drawers. I must tell you one other thing about okay, this please. museum before we get to what I found, which was, he said, oh, and after we'd been sat there for a bit, he said, I'll be upstairs. So I said, oh, that's, that's great. He said, but there's no mobile signal, so you won't be able to find me. So I was quite frightened. I sat there and I tried to calm down. I'll just do some drawing and it'll be fine. And after I'd been there and the lights had gone out a few times and I got used to waving my arms around to bring the lights back on again. And then all of a sudden there's... And I thought, that's not the door. What is that? And I, I don't know. I thought, it's just a noise. And I carried on and after I'd been there for a couple of days, there was... So after a while I said, when Russell Stebbings, who's the keeper of collections there, came down, I said, Russell, what is that tapping noise every now and then that's coming from the insect collection? And he went, we have no idea. I said, (laughs) you work in this place and it makes this noise and you don't want to know what's going, let me out. (laughs) Love it. Seriously. Anyway. There's a oh, horror film waiting. There's to a be horror out. film waiting to be made. There. Um, the cross-disciplinary arts <laughs> meets science horror movie of the century. I don't think anybody would go. Anyway, I would go. <laughs> it was it was it was fascinating and uh, and slightly overwhelming and a bit like being in a sweet shop and 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 I was simultaneously entranced by the, these extraordinary creatures, completely extraordinary, and they are. They're one of those things that the more you look, the more you see, the more you pay attention to them, the more you see. And, and when you first get out a drawer of, you know, 50 small brown moths, you think, well, 50 more small brown moths, and then you start to pay attention, and they are extraordinary. And these, are these just native British collections? Yeah. Large, I mean, I had about two alleyways of floor-to-ceiling cupboards with drawers in that were the native British ones, and there must have been... I don't know, 30 alleyways of things, so I didn't even look at mm-hmm. anything out. I didn't look at micromoths. I didn't look at anything non-native. I didn't look at beetles and clear wings. I didn't, you know, I didn't, there's, there's lots of stuff I didn't. I just tried to focus on on one thing and tried to be calm enough to kind of think, well, what what is calling me, which we can go back to that. I mean, that is tends to be how I try to operate, to try to just, try not to impose myself on it, but try to see what, what asks, what comes forward and says, okay, I'm, you know... I think what my whole working life has been an attempt to move away from this um, slightly Western male thing of sort of seizing it and interrogating mm. appearances and sort of um, comparing appearances to ideals and viewing, like a tourist views the landscape and to see if I can do this thing of sitting very still and literally that, let and see what comes to me. And that... I tried to apply that in this museum and it was very difficult because it was scary mm-hmm. and it was sort of strip lit and etc. But um, what came was this rather extraordinary 
moth called it's called bordered gothic and as much as anything else it may well have been the name if i'm honest because i mean they've all got wonderful names but the bordered gothic i mean that's just wonderful mm-hmm. and we know and there's also something about the bordered gothic we don't actually know why it's no longer turning up in traps or being recorded anymore they it's it it, it, it wants kind of chalky wastelands and kind of rough chalky soil cliffs old quarries there's still enough of that around sure. not much but anyway the bordered gothic has decided it's it doesn't want anything to do with us anymore and it's a rather it's a small brown moth but it's got this very beautiful intricate pattern so in the end having made a lot of drawings of different moths and thinking and reading reading all these red data book rules and talking to a lot of really interesting naturalists and scientists and I settled on that one. What happens when it's interesting when you talk to naturally to moth moth mothers and there are there's an army of mothers out there recording and is that an official term? I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what they would call themselves. Moth enthusiasts, mothers. It's quite difficult to say. There's a lot of people out there who who trap moths on a regular basis. You do understand that moths don't get hurt when you trap them, don't mm-hmm. you? Yeah, I, I always have to. Trap and release would probably be a better way to say it. Let's, um, before we go into trapping and releasing, and in particular how, do you, how you responded to the boarded Gothic, mm. because that gets very much into your practice, let's, let's go back to the beginning now that we know the end. Okay. Um, as an observer and someone who waits for things to come to you, is that something that you've become, or was this, your, was this always you? Where did you start? Were you quiet and observant? Were you fascinated by nature? Were you fascinated about art and the response to the world or is this something that's come later and if that's the case when did you first notice these things it's very difficult to know where to begin I don't remember not drawing mm-hmm. I, I grew up in, in right in the countryside we didn't even live in a village we lived in a farmhouse in the middle of middle of nowhere but both of my parents were uh, artists and designers and they'd met at the Royal College of Art and they were mm-hmm. running at the time a small design studio making sets for television Sure. Early, early television set designers, theatre set designers, that kind of stuff. Anything that I would have seen? Um, Ready, Steady, Go was the <laughs> was my father's. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you a funny story about him. He was a he was a young Irishman, and he lied about his age to get into the Royal College of Art, and was completely brilliant. And went in to do illustration, and they went round the illustration schools early on and said, anybody who'll switch to this new school that we're starting, which is called the Television School television design school we will uh, we guarantee you a job at the end of it so if you're an underage mm-hmm. Irishman with no parents at that stage he just jumped and he was very very good at it so he made sense for Shirley Bassey and the Beatles and <laughs> cool. all kinds of fun stuff and my mother was very very talented she left and started when she left the Royal College she started Paper Chase yeah I read that she's just died recently so I'm that was yeah so she they were very they were a talented pair and we grew up the point of talking about them is that we I grew up with a huge amount of freedom and I also grew up with a huge amount of art materials I grew up in the same way as musicians grow up with their children grow up with that stuff in my mum's a musician so we had a sack bar a couple of French horns I was on the clarinet my sister was on the oboe there were drums pianos whatever like we're musicians not because we want to be but because that was what was in the house yeah and there's no there's no fear of those things and there's no they're just there so you can try different ones so their house was always full of everything gesso gold leaf pencils paper always masses and masses of paper mm-hmm. inks paints brushes it was never that was just that was the sea i swam in that 
And curiously, because they were both working and busy, an enormous amount of time to spend outside on my own. Sure. And we had a young Welsh nanny who came to live with us because they were both determined to work. And she had come from Wales and she was hugely into, way before anything, any of this was fashionable, into foraging. Okay. So I don't have a scientist, I didn't, there was no naturalist in there yeah. showing me moths or getting me to raise wood lice in tanks or anything like that. But there was this constant going out looking for things that you could eat. So that was just normal. I wasn't very happy at school, wasn't well liked. And I don't think I was quiet and contemplative. I think I was a pain in the bottom, really. I was just <laughs> not a very happy child. And then what I do remember is this when suddenly this thing that I'd always done, I remember that transition where you where I moved from being not well liked by teachers or other pupils or and just being unhappy and a pain to suddenly, oh my god, you're rather good at this. This is, wow, look, you can do this. And that, that, that kind of inner feeling of, oh, hang on, it was like getting a first foothold or sure. something. Oh, I can do this. Here I go. And that was very compelling when you're 15 or 16, about that sort of age, and you're really lost. Do you remember the first bit of art that you did that your teachers went, that's good? Because I remember the first thing I did that yeah. actually made them go, oh. Oh. Yeah. What was yours? It was a landscape. Uh-huh. And I think I had got to sixth form, so I must have been 16, and somebody, and, and therefore had access somehow to oil paints, must have been in the art room. Sure. And I just went and painted the, the field out the back of the house with some trees in, in the background and took it in, and that was it. It was, an old, it was I mean, I, I think I threw it away a few years ago, looked at it and thought, that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, really horrible. But it was that, it was that little movement that happened, and I just, and... From there, I carried on, I think, being a bit a bit lost, but I just more or less stopped doing my other A-levels and just did lots and lots and lots of time in the art room. Mm-hmm. And then... That I, sounds very familiar. Very familiar, isn't it? You start to yeah. know... And Every, like, there wasn't a common room for artists. Everyone at sixth form at my school would be in the common room if they did anything other, but all the artists in their spare time would be in the art room. You just are in the art room. Yeah. That's, where it, that's where your materials are, and that's yeah. where it's a bit quieter and... And then I left school, and by then my mother had left, and so I went home to live with my dad, and I think my dad kind of realised that he suddenly had an 18-year-old on his hands, and this was going to cramp his style. (laughs) And also, he had that wonderful, wonderful immigrant thinking, which was, um, I'd completely messed up, I hadn't managed to apply to anywhere or do anything about going anywhere next. And he says, well, you, if you want to be a painter, you better go to Paris. Isn't that where painters go? And he, I don't know how he did this. I mean, he didn't have great, he didn't write terribly well. But he somehow managed to find out a handful of different art schools in Paris. And we got interviews. I mean, I was just drifting along, just oblivious. I just remember being bundled into the car with my portfolio. And we drove to Paris mm-hmm. and found, I did these interviews. Anyway, I ended up in, in this very small atelier in Paris and hey presto, we are, we're dealing with, we're in an atelier which is dealing with methods and materials. So this was Patrick Bertodier. Patrick Bertodier. He sounds amazing. He was amazing. Could you explain who he is? It was love at first sight. So Patrick Bertodier was, you can remember this is also, this is 1979. Mm-hmm. And my dad's an Irishman and he has spent his life in England dealing with a level of racism towards the Irish which you don't really see very much anymore but was was definitely there, yep. was definitely there. and Obviously, we're not racist anymore in our country, so everything's no, fine now. everything's absolutely fine now. Yeah. 
But we don't have signs on the pub saying no blacks, no Irish, no hot pickers, which is what was on the signs of the pubs around when we were growing up. No dogs, sometimes it added in for good measure. Well, at least we've taken the signs down. We've taken the signs down. So Patrick was... Patrick was a really, really interesting man. He was Trinidadian, mm-hmm. West African origin, Trinidadian. He had come over here to England as a young man on something which was called the Colonial Programme. Mm-hmm. And he had gone and he'd been in the RAF and he'd been to Cambridge and he'd, he'd also been to the Royal College of Art. And then he'd gone back to America, been in the Civil Rights Movement. He'd been in the 1968 riots in Paris. He was really a fascinating man who was highly articulate, highly articulate about race, racism, and he was into simultaneously T.S. Eliot, Botticelli, that kind of a level of culture that I just hadn't been How many languages did he speak? If he's in Paris, but he's from Trinidad. He spoke French and English. Okay. But he spoke English like um, the actor James Mason. He had this (laughs) wonderful voice, which I can't do. Anyway, it was love at first sight. I was watching a documentary about Sidney Poitier the other day, um, who's from, it's from the Bahamas, but again, he learned his wonderful accent through watching someone on screen. It was a news reporter, I think. He listened to the radio or something. It's that amazing thing when you hear all of these stunning immigrants who come across but have had to reshape how they form somehow because of who they've seen yes. or who they've listened to. Yeah. My dad had no Irish accent. He said, no, you couldn't have an Irish accent. You get beaten up. He learned... His, he had an entirely acquired English accent to avoid being beaten up again as he was beaten up, you know. Patrick said, told me many times stories of being in the deep south in America and dealing with things like your car breaking down and needing help and you you get out of the car and you're black mm-hmm. and you have a white, he had a, a French white wife and being surrounded by people and then when he opened his mouth and out came this English accent and it was he was a confusing individual. Yeah. Anyway, he was a deeply cultured and educated Did, man. He obviously found, having lived and worked for the British for a while and coming from yeah. Trinidad but settling in France, does that imply that he found the French more accepting of yes. immigrants? Yeah, and more accepting of artists. He said he did say at the time. I mean, he said to me things like, I remember him saying things like, "England is a deeply racist country, Sarah." And I was like, even though I'd grown up with this Irish father, yeah. with I mean, I remember the police checking us out at times. You know, periodically, every time there was another bombing, we would get the house would be searched. I didn't think about racism. I hadn't thought about it. I was just a teenager. I was just absorbed sure. with myself. But he, you know, he, he found Paris, and the French state is better with its artists. Oh as yes, well. they, they they fund you. You get a they stipend basically. He, what do they call it? it? There's the you basically get a wage based around your com, your commitment to the nation's artistic yeah. identity. They oh. gave him they gave him studios. You know, he was given when he eventually moved down to the south near Montflancain, and the mayor said, well, "We're honoured to have you here. What about this? Would this building suit? You know, would this do? <laughs> here, here it is. Anyway, Patrick was." Extraordinary, and I went. I embarked on this very old-fashioned apprenticeship, and and I literally was. I was given a pen, a pencil to start off with. There was three about three months of drawing before I was allowed to start painting. Oh, I just loved it. And when I say given one pencil, I started with one pencil, and by the end of those weeks, I was I was on all twelve pencils. You learned to draw with everything from six A through to six B, and it was just it was nuts. It was so disciplined. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he said. Who taught him? Who taught him is a very, very good question because he was St. Martin's and Royal College of Art. Uh-huh. But then he definitely, all, that nobody was teaching that stuff. You know, Van, we were learning Van Eyck techniques. Sure. So mixed p- painting with 
Yeah, you put wet. it in lacquer and you yeah. hide the oils within it so it, does, it doesn't lose its vibrancy. Yep. If I'm right. You're painting it temperate yeah. into wet resin layers and things. That's it. That's very, um, it's very, I think he just self, self-taught, basically, self-studied research, what we now would call research. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he said, Let, let's paint. Did you bring any paints with you? So I went and got my little box of paints that I bought with me and, um, and my few crappy brushes. And we're looking at these, getting ready. And he's basically getting ready to send me into Paris, to the centre of Paris, to buy what I need to start on painting. And he pulls out these sort of half dozen tubes of paint I've got and they're, oh, they're all horrible and he pulls out one which I'm very glad to say Windsor and Newton don't make anymore and it's called flesh tint <laughs> and I hadn't thought about flesh tint I just had a tube of it <laughs> and what I remember and I can see it in front of it was he pulled it out looked at it and he put it down again and then he rolled up the sleeve of his beautiful arm and squeezed some of this flesh tint out onto his skin and didn't say anything yeah but I've never forgotten it. Oh, I was, it was excruciating. It was totally excruciating. Anyway, that's just There's, another story. Um, so yeah, so you've got, you've got methods and materials from Patrick and you're there for just a year in Paris, yep, is that right? Just a year, yeah. And then you're off to the Ruskin School of Drawing and Fine yeah. Art in Oxford. Yeah. Which I guess was a very different kind of training. Yeah. Um, it wasn't a training, really. <laughs> did, did you not enjoy it at all? Did I enjoy it at all? I'd been living in Paris in this extraordinary international bohemian slash also very strict household Mm -hmm. and then I went up to Oxford which was a world I knew nothing about and I was completely we were in Mrs Thatcher deep into Mrs Thatcher's reign you've heard of her yeah and there was this thing there were these people that I also hadn't come across before who were people who were open Tories Mm -hmm. openly I had not come across these people before (laughs) I had people referring, I was amongst young people who were using words normally, in their normal speech, to describe people of colour that I won't even say to you on this interview. Uh-huh. And I was just so uncomfortable and so out of my depth and so um, I didn't know, I didn't enjoy it. There were things I did enjoy about it, but I mean, we probably haven't, there, were, there, were, some, there were some pretty lovely things. It's, okay. it's a pretty, pretty beautiful and privileged place to be, but there was an awful lot that I was very unhappy with. And the art school, I don't think, was a very happy place. It didn't quite know how to function. I think it's a much, much better art school now. Mm-hmm. It didn't know how to sit within the university. Or it was still, let's be kind, it was still learning how to sit within the sure. university. And Oxford has a hell of a reputation to try and find your place within it, I imagine. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, and I think you've got to, I've got to hold my hand up and also say I, I probably came with the wrong, the wrong mindset. I came to fully formed in a way I'd already had the, I had this practice in place I thought I knew yeah. what I was doing I was probably arrogant and we just went head to head and I wasn't wasn't very happy at all one or two tutors were wonderful there was a man called John Newbury who was fantastic who was gentle and came out and kind of sought me out and kept persisted with trying to um, to help me so I was grateful to him but I spent most of my time at the place I felt at home was the print room Okay. Which I didn't see coming at all. Because you were a, you were basically a painter. painter. I was basically yeah. a painter, but I was so un, so kind of not happy and couldn't fit in with the the painting kind of scene and the painting crowd. And you had to do as you I think in all art schools you have to do a, you know like a few weeks of each discipline. discipline yeah. And I got into the print room and went, oh okay, this is uh, this is because we're back to methods and materials. Sure. Here we are. Suddenly, this is not 
this is not oh just paint Sarah just express yourself the, the art school the painting school was that's all very well very clever but when are you going to express yourself and that's a terrifying thing to say to me. <laughs> I found that a terrifying. I've always found that terrifying, and I would like to come back to the subject of self-expression because mm-hmm, I have found that it terrifying. It's like when somebody tells you to be yourself, you suddenly panic. I have no idea what that is. So, printmaking was fabulous, and suddenly we're back into materials and process and ways of doing things and stuff I could actually kind of get hold of and learn. So I spent most of my three years printing in print the print room. And then yet, when you left, as I understand it, you just painted. Again. I just painted. I don't, Is that just because that's what people wanted and you had to make a living? Uh, or? I just don't, I don't know. Printmaker, I didn't have a press. You need, press, you need, a, you need kit, need equipment and space. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I was living in various rented places and I didn't have, I didn't have the equipment. And, I, and I, I, had, I was painting, but I just didn't go into art school and paint. I painted in my rooms. Sure. No, but I don't know why it took me so long to go back to it. So, and I'm going to gloss over the vast majority of your professional career, but please do. I found you described as a meticulous observer of the subtle effects of light on the landscape, and that's you as a painter. You're also a Royal West of England academician. Yeah. Like, and this is all for your painting work. Yeah. If you could read aloud this bottom bit, which is something that you wrote in May of 2018. I'm trying this year to draw and paint trees as if as if its presence meets my absence, as if the presence of the sky comes only from the pregnant absence between the branches, as if the water and carbon that makes us both could speak of shade and sunlight, starlight and frost, and most of all, as if the black trunk and heavy limbs rise, as of course they do, from the compost of the land, leaf mould, wing dust, robin's bones, and my own. One of, the, one of the main reasons I got you to, to read that out loud was because a year later in May 2019, you wrote that that process managed to make you feel uncomfortably disconnected. You found it shiny and superfluous. Oil painting. Yeah. Okay, so that, that little quote that you've got there is about drawing. I think it says, mm-hmm. I'm trying to draw. Or to what draw does it and paint trees, as it. And paint. Yeah. Okay. What, why did you fall out of love with painting and drawing? Well, there are personal reasons and political reasons. I'm not out of love with drawing by okay. any means. I draw. Drawing is a, is a constant. Sure. So one of the reasons that drawing is a constant is when you go out with just a pencil and a sketchbook, mm-hmm. it's so simple and so primal, if you like. It's, if you think about it just in terms of it's a stick of charcoal and yeah, a yeah. blank sheet, you are, there's not very much in the way of, your, of that business of sitting yourself, sitting yourself down or standing yourself against the gate leaning finding somewhere to be and stay still and let the things around you resonate and start to resonate with your own bones and your own body mm-hmm. through your eyes and your hand if you're fannying around with paints trying to mix colors and deal with that as well you i find i mean many people can do it mm-hmm. Monica could do it lots of people could do it i find there's too much of me around there's something about paint that there's too much of me in there and i really badly need when i'm outside to really put me very quietly to one side sure. and get out of the way it's it's hard to do and the other thing that happened, mm-hmm. so that's the personal side of it, that's the kind of experience, how, what, how I experienced it. The other thing that happened was I was showing paintings and had, had, I was having a reasonably successful career and it's all, all is good. And then 
you start to realise that you would be making, I'd be making, I maybe made about four paintings a year, they were detailed, took a long time to make, and I was blessed and lucky in that they sold relatively quickly, but they would sell, and they would go straight into somebody's collection, and go into a vault, and that would be it. And all the kind of, doesn't matter how fine your thoughts and your words are about what is the poetic or the ecological meaning of what you're doing, it's gone, I mean, to be honest, the, 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 the sort of, Nadir of it all was when one was bought for the guest bedroom of this fellow's second yacht. And I think I said something to him when I was eventually met him and said, you can't, I don't think you can put paintings on a yacht. And the dealer I was with at the time literally kicked me and said, you're not thinking mm-hmm. about the same sort of yacht as, as this yeah. is. So I just, I just got unhappy. I was just unhappy with it. It's hard to express it wasn't working for me sure. on two different levels. You said something just then, which was that, that is not the poetical and ecological reasons for why you were creating and drawing and painting. What were those reasons? Well, I think that the exploration, the process of having spent all these years exploring the outside world mm-hmm. and looking carefully at it, has led, it led the way. So it led the way to these poetic what I would call a poem, what is now what I hope is a poetic response to the world. And this is this is very, very hard to talk about, but what is happening is that you can't pay that much attention to a group of trees or a moth or a particular place, like I spent a lot of time at Slapton Lee, which is a little freshwater area down mm-hmm. there, without starting to experience the sentience of the body of water or the body of the tree or the... And yes, I did say the sentience of the body of water mm-hmm. or the river or the hillside or whatever it is. And th- so that became so apparent, so clear. I mean, I'm absolutely sure about this, that these, that is, that is the poetry. That For me, the poetry is that exchange that happens between when you're, when you're outside and you're concentrating and that exchange that happens, sometimes it's very, very fast. It's like a ball mm-hmm. thrown and caught. It's non-verbal for a start. But it's not, the tree isn't saying, hey, Sarah, go out and tell people I'm in trouble. It's not that. It's a non-verbal, energetic exchange. And sometimes it's very fast. And sometimes it would be easier to describe it as being like something like a bow being drawn across the strings of a cello. So something is reverberating between your body and in the body of the other being. Uh Is it inspiration that's being shared? Is it a sense of identity that's resonating out? What what is it that they're saying? It's interesting, both those words, inspiration and identity, are two words that I've got quite big problems with. I think we're obsessed, we're obsessed with our, we're so obsessed with our own identity and we're actually asked these days in the art world to be absorbed with your identity. It's all about identity Uh and I think I have, as I've got older, got more and more sure about saying I am, that my identity is the last thing I'm interested in. The last thing. It is. I know what that is. It's really boring. I'm mm-hmm. much more interested in what what else, what is this that's going on out there that we're so keen not to hear, or not to know about, or not to feel. Let's put it that way. Sure. Because it would be just too painful if we felt it all. But you, you are feeling it, you are listening, so do you find it painful? Yes, you, a lot. You're the tuning time. in. Yeah, it is quite painful. It's not, as the hairdresser always says, is it relaxing being an artist? And you <laughs> nearly have to struggle not to leave at that point. 
And is that why, therefore, to have your work displayed in a yacht, you feel intrinsically misses the point because no one would want something painful above their bed on a super yacht? I think that I think it's a bit of hubris on my part, really. I have to admit to that. Just sort of, it's more important than that. You know, uh-huh. you're not getting the message. I think it's that. Whereas I think, I mean, I I, I have met some one. Uh, it's really it's really tr- tricky territory. This I don't I don't want to sound like I'm bashing the rich, but it, it, but if you're making oil paintings, these are the most valuable art forms that there are. You, mm-hmm. I heard a program on the radio the other day about Sotheby's or Christie's. It is still oil paintings, mm-hmm. oil paintings and bronze. That, that fetch that fetch the prices, and so you are making work for the very very rich. Sure, that's what's happening there. If we're honest, and I became increasingly uncomfortable with that, and that allied to the fact that I wasn't able to do this tuning in that I can do with drawing, with I was painting. It made me stop. Printmaking is not. People say printmaking is democratic. Dem- democratic is the wrong word. It is. It is slightly subversive because mm-hmm. it subverts the notion. That there, that it subverts the notion of uniqueness, of special, of a little bit. It, it slightly undermines the idea that if you buy this, you've got something that nobody else has got. Yeah. Well, that might just be one of an edition of three hundred. It might just be one of an edition of twenty, but there are twenty. There are yeah, nineteen yeah. others. So it, that's why I say slightly subversive. It's only slightly subversive. I guess it also goes hand in hand with printmaking being a way of, of taking information to other places through whether it be political pamphlets or through. I don't know, the Gutenberg Bible or whatever it is. Yeah. It, it's it's mass production of ideas. It's got a nice history. Yeah. It has a true. nice history of being slightly subversive. I mean, I'm not setting it up on a pedestal. It's also, you know, the early printmaking was, res- you know, text print was responsible sure. for much witch hunting and stuff like that. So Quite. it's not it's not all good. So what what drew you back to printmaking then? I got I got myself into this sort of stuck state of unhappiness oh. and and. A friend said, "Come printmaking," and I, I just went printmaking. And that it was almost as soon as I was back in the print workshop, in a print workshop that used to be run at Dartington, which is just near here. And I was just like, "Oh yeah, this. Oh yes, this. This is just lovely." I don't. I just. It's just like a falling away of superfluous stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Metzitint, in particular, I got into because it's well. There's technical reasons which I probably won't bore you with, but. I found, I found an article where you said that you got into medicine as a method because of its difficulty. Yes. <laughs> it's really difficult. It, it, it also doesn't involve any acid and it doesn't, you don't need a lot of specialist equipment. Mm-hmm. You just need this to make, prepare the copper in a certain way. Yeah. But I think... The so you, you, for layman's terms, you scratch your design into a copper plate and then you run a, I don't know what you'd call it, like a, a device across the top that puts dents into the, the copper plate in 64 different directions, and <laughs> that gives you multiple textures and tones. Quick quick history lesson. Okay. It was you, invented can, you can in, say what Metzitin is better <laughs> than Metzitin was invented in 1642 by mm-hmm. Ludwig von Siegen, and, it, and well, invented. They were trying to find a way of making more tonal engraving. Line engraving had been going on for ages. They were trying to get more tonal... Uh, subtlety into engraving in order that they could reproduce oil paintings, which were becoming a bigger and bigger thing. That's sure, where it's because going. everyone wants an oil painting because it's the most to... amazing thing, and so therefore we'll create them in a printed form. Yes, that's right. You can't have an oil painting. Full you, can have a metzotin, <laughs> you can have a metzotin to the same thing. So, but what that means is that it's just you and some tools and a piece of copper. Sure. And then a printing press. But you can go and use printing presses in different places. But what I like about metzotin, apart from the fact it's really difficult, <laughs> Which helps me because again, it's this business of sort of dealing with the sort of chattering what the Buddhists call the monkey mind, quietening that with the difficulty. So that's out of the way, and you've just got to concentrate really, really hard. Mm-hmm. What I like about it is that things don't have edges, and it was Blake that said nature has no outline, but imagination does, which doesn't 
quite apply to what I'm saying, but there is this idea that we don't, you don't draw lines around things with Metzitint, you, you draw them out, you draw them forth from the darkness. The image is drawn forth from the darkness. You have to work in reverse, don't you? You work in mirror and in reverse. Yeah. So it's, there's the tricky, there's White the difficult black, bit. Yeah. There, there is not there. Yeah. And it's the mirror image of what it is. And there is not there. And so you're dealing, it's an art of erosion. You're dealing constantly with absences, with what's not there. Which again, this feeds, this goes circles back to what I was saying. So you're, if you're dealing with what's not there, if you're dealing with the pauses, the, mm-hmm. the, the places, the piece I read out earlier, you're dealing with what's between things, the absences, the pregnant absences, as sure. the Taoists say, then you're not dealing with yourself. You're not dealing with gesture and with mark making, really at all. It's, it's really hard to explain. It's almost like you're eliminating all of that. So it's in that space that you create, if you get rid of all your gesture and all your expression and all your, all your desire to put yourself forward, is the thing comes to you. When... Through various sculptors that I've spoken to over the years, they talk about the commodity of what they're using, whether it's a piece of marble yeah. or whatever, that there's something already within it that comes out yeah. of it. With Metzitin, by putting your image on top of the copper plate, but it being an extant object to upon which you're placing it, is it a dialogue? Do you believe that the copper plate itself already has that image within it, or are you having a role of imposition yeah, there. well exactly no I don't think that the image is within the copper plate I mean the copper copper is problematic if you want to go there it's sure. an extracted metal an extracted heavy metal mm-hmm. so I mean I do periodically think I should probably stop can you reuse them could you they can be recycled yeah. that is that's the mitigating factor it, it is it can be completely it's completely recyclable but it's still yeah. a mined material yeah, yeah. Yeah, art is not carbon neutral art is I mean You'd be moving it around. And would art be interesting if it were carbon neutral? Or would so much of the self of the creator through the act of actually trying to be it? I mean, and this is in the current age. Hopefully in the future we'll be all so carbon neutral that it's taken for granted. But in the current age... Well, interestingly, the, the future of art, which is these NFTs, have got the biggest carbon, carbon footprint, footprint of all of them. Yeah. So we're not actually sorting this out at all. We're just, it's the same model. It's the same mm. capitalist model of the value of the thing being the, the main thing. The scarcity. How do we make something so scarce that we can make it more valuable? Yeah. Still I was reading it. a... They call, they call them mining. Yeah. The minting. Yeah. Minting and mining. It's, it's awful. All the, the amount of computers you need yeah. to make them unique. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a wormhole that I don't want to go down now. No. But it is a disgusting one. NFTs, I think, are a bit of an abomination, to be honest, sadly. Because I quite like the... I like the fact that they can take art instantly out to people and yeah. give them that sense of uniqueness but the cost of it is, is a terrifying one there was an example of a, a raid that the American police did on a warehouse they'd done a a satellite image of it and the heat coming off it made them think it was a hydroponics lab someone was growing yeah. cannabis or, yeah. or the like and they burst in expected to find rows and rows of cannabis plants and it was just computers it was just servers it was just spinning over making these unique numbers to make sure that your yeah. picture of Mickey Mouse wearing that kilt was a unique one yeah so from metatins to moths, where, where do moths come into this? Why, why would someone be fascinated by moths out of the blue, if you were? Well, because they came out of the blue. Where this is where I from? start to sound really woo-woo. You, well, you haven't started to sound woo-woo yet. I think I... Well, wait. <laughs> they, they, I did not raise moths as a child. I have no natural history. I have this outdoor kind of background but no kind of real science no scientific or natural history background at all mm-hmm. and it, they they arrived in my life simultaneously with the with the Mets with the sort of getting into Metzitent again and I I find this question really really hard to answer because they came to me and I 
that's all I know. I did not go, I need a new subject matter, off I go, I'm going to go look mm-hmm. for a subject matter. So what happened then? Did one just land on your your, your cashmere cardigan? Did one f- fly into the window frame? Was it brought in by a cat? Was it? They, they, they just start, they, they started arriving. So they'd be in the studio, they'd be in the house, they'd be everywhere. Uh-huh. Do you remember which species in the early days? Do they still arrive? Actually, funny enough, yes, yeah. But they, they definitely arrived. I have no, I don't think that they chose me. That is, we're, we're, you know, fall down with language immediately. Mm-hmm. But I started to notice them. They started to arrive. I started to read about them. Because just that natural, just curiosity, really. What is this? My gosh, look at that. That's really very beautiful. What is that? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Very quickly, when you start reading about them, what you get, if you put, start putting moth names or just moth into any search engine, Google or whatever, you will very, the first things that come up are how to get rid of them. <laughs> sure. People hate them. Mm-hmm. Even though it's like two or three species of micromoths that actually cause you any yeah, damage yeah. and the rest of them are beautiful pollinators and foodstuffs for birds and bats and... And they're responsible for entropy. Imagine if things didn't break down. Yeah. So that, a bit like the difficulty of Metzton being an attractor, the fact that, that something is unloved, deeply unloved, is attractive, If you're, I think, if you're an artist. At best when invisible as well, Yeah. the humans would say. Yeah. And not really visible. They're not really visible. They're yeah. not really here. They're here and not here at the same time. We don't know anything about them. People. I just found it completely... And once I started, I... I really couldn't stop and I fell out with my lovely had a lovely London gallery at the time who were horrified <laughs> stop with give the, us your oil painting <laughs> stop with the insects Sarah <laughs> so what and then what happened so then so so I was making I was making drawings of moths okay I need to go back one step here. okay when did you put out your first light box to deliberately catch a moth 2012 and that was before you would, like, why? Well, why? Why, why? You... because I'd got, as soon as I started to get interested, so they'd, they'd started appearing around uh-huh. 2010, I'm going to say, and 2012. By then, I'd found out enough that if you really wanted to look at them, you needed this thing called a light box. Mm-hmm. So it went from there. I now have three. So it's a bit like guitars. <laughs> you have to have lots of them. Um, and the, it just, it's just one of those things, the more you look, the more extraordinary you are, and the more it feels like the more attention you pay or the more attention I paid them the more extraordinary they became mm-hmm. the gallery was very much uh, you know just back off with the insects there you, you know nobody wants to look at insects it's, but they weren't unsupported but they were just like could you please keep going with the landscape yeah. and then what happened very specifically and I can remember this really specifically was 2019 I had a show in Mayfair in London in a really good gallery of sort of drawings and oil paintings, these semi-something hybrid between oil painting and drawing that I was doing at the time. And Exarnic, the first rebellion kicked off. It was in the April. And the gallery closed because they were right there. It was right, they were just down from Piccadilly Circus. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew what was, was happening. I knew what was happening because my sister was very involved at the time. It was okay. right there. So, and I know a bit about non-violent demonstration and stuff like that. I knew it was a non-violent demonstration and, and I had for years, I mean, have been um, writing and, and campaigning and thinking about uh, biodiversity collapse and climate change for a long time. So this, it seemed to me to be completely this natural thing that was happening and, and almost like a relief, like a boil bursting, finally we're on the streets sort of thing. But it was, for, I think for people in Mayfair and stuff, this was threatening and terrifying. It took them a few days to open the gallery 
And I had asked for, I wanted the show to be called Dear Earth, I Couldn't Live Without You, which is a kind of long and of itself indulgent title, but that's kind of what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And they had not wanted to call it that, so it had been called something very anodyne, like New Work. And it took a few days, I think, for people to understand what was going on. But what I realised was that I was in the wrong place. Sure. I was in the wrong world. And my sister was saying to me, why aren't you on the streets? Come on. And I was going, I can't, I can't, I can't, I'm not brave like you. I, I don't want to be arrested. I, I hate crowds. I really can't do crowds. She was saying, well, come on, come and peel carrots in the vegan kitchen then. I thought, <laughs> screw that. I've done 20 years of raising children. I'm peeling <laughs> carrots. I can do something better. But it was, you know, frivolity aside, it was, it was a really challenging. It was a very good challenge to all of us. What are you doing? Yeah. It was a really necessary challenge. What are you doing? And it's burning. So the exhibition finished and it was fine. And I, but I came away, left the gallery and thought, I had to have a rethink. And I thought, okay, well, I think what I will do is I will spend the whole... I, what I will do, my answer to that question is, because I don't think climate change can be separated from the collapse, from species collapse. Mm-hmm. Okay. I will spend the whole of this year and I will dedicate myself just to these moths and to making work about that. And I will go on a sort of verbal strike, whereas I will only talk about my work in terms of what's going on and I will not I will stop talking about my work in the kind of normal formal terms in which one one learns to talk about art and um, and that's what I did and it didn't go on for a year it's it didn't stop it's ongoing it's ongoing so how are we talking about your work now if you to explain what your prints of moths are and I always think there should be a better plural for moths I know there isn't mice mice <laughs> how would you describe your Mezzotint mice. My, my mezzotints are my neighbours, is how I think of them. <laughs> um, I've never been happier in my work. That's amazing. I can say that. I have never been so kind of um, sure of my footing as I am now. Are you sure of yourself to go back to what you wanted to go back to earlier? I'm uninterested in myself. I'm totally uninterested. Is that the best they way are... to find happiness and contentment? Yes. <laughs> they are far, far more interesting. They're so much more interesting. I mean, is it, I'm just, yeah, that's all I have to say. On Do that. they have characters, the moths? No, that's to impose an a hu- entirely human construct on them. What's, what is extraordinary about moths, okay, is that, that we're all taught metamor- metamorphosis, which interestingly is a word I struggle to say mm-hmm. at school. But what is interesting when you really think about it is that they don't, they continually die unto themselves, is the expression they they, they, they lay eggs and then they die. They die very quickly. They don't mm-hmm. have long lives. The, cat, the eggs hatch into caterpillars and then the caterpillars voluntarily dissolve themselves and to turn themselves into a soup with something yeah. containing imaginal cells. <laughs> Extraordinary. Yeah. And then out of this comes another moth which will last a few weeks. Its entire existence, it, and this is where the, uh, we're back to our head of entomology at, at Cambridge, its entire existence is dependent will be dependent on, a, on either one or a handful of plants or plant types. Yes. It doesn't exist separately from the plants. The one thing I always got upset with about metamorphoses was that we always saw the butterfly or the moth as the end goal of which they yeah. were striving for. Yeah. And there are a number of species that um, only even eat when they're in their caterpillar yeah. stage. Yeah. And yet, in terms of the biodiversity value of moth the caterpillar provides so much more food for other species mm. that most moths don't even get to the flappy colorful stage yeah but then even they are important as flappy yeah. colorful things because of the pollination etc but the caterpillar stage is arguably more important if you wanted to place value 
Yeah. But that's probably just a quantity rather than quality. I think we've gone, they've gone, in the, the moths are coming into focus now and people, are, they're talked about as pollen, as important pollinators, which they are. But that's so typical of us because basically what we're saying is it's an ecosystem service. Mm-hmm. Because the other ecosystem service that they perform, if you want to talk in those horrible terms, which I don't like at all, is that they are responsible for entropy. So the reason that clothes moths eat our clothes is because their action function is to break down animal hair, Mm -hmm. which we would be drowning in if it didn't get broken down. So they, they they have all these functions, yeah, if you want to think of them in those terms. But for me... They're our neighbours and they're part of what's going on around us. And partly what I love is that we just don't know. We don't know anything really. We don't know anything about them. They're out there doing their thing. And we think we're in charge, you know. Do you have favourite species of moth? No. Much as never have favourite moths among children. No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And there's ones I really like. I'm always There's ones I'm really happy to see. You get this thing, we were talking about mothers earlier. You get this thing where... And this is something else I've learned really just this year in Cambridge is, is you get you do get this thing with mothers and other and people like me who get interested in moths where you start seeking out the rare. And that's always very exciting. And you know, you wait for certain moths appear very specific times of the year, so you start waiting for September when the Clifton nonpareil might turn up and mm-hmm. all this, that and the other. And you get very excited about certain more unusual things. But what I learned from the entomologists was it's the common things that really matter. It's they're, they're, we're, we're much more dependent and tied into the, to those things that are common and if they start to collapse then we're really in trouble because the, the common things are tied into way more things yeah. a rare moth is probably connected to a rare plant yeah. so it's a very small little circle of connections yeah, there's a, like, there's a very rare bumblebee called the bilberry bumblebee yeah. um, that is rare linked to the bilberry bush yeah. and when we lose them we lose them both but the bilberry bush can be pollinated by other bees so yeah. they're one of the species that we can in inverted commas lose yeah. if we want to yeah or should we fail to keep them alive and um, there are three questions that i ask everyone on the podcast yeah go for it uh, the first one is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world where would it be it would be the west coast of ireland which is completely going off at a tangent but it's, are we talking Ring of Kerry? Are we talking Connemara? Where we're we talking Connemara, specifically okay. somewhere right out on the west coast near Inishbofin. So that, and that is simply because to do that is to go for a walk with my dad, west coast of Ireland, white sand, Atlantic edge, the edge again, just, just somewhere I've always felt very at home. What would he have thought about you and your moths? Oh, he was fat. He, you know, he was 100%, 110%. He said, 110%, I support you 110%, whatever I did. He would be pleased that I'm doing it. He would probably think it was a bit bonkers making medicine, and he would be, the engineer in him would be desperately sure he could invent a quicker way to do it. Hmm. But no, he'd have been, he was very proud, very proud man. Do you love the fact that you are making the small forgettable, somewhat would, some people would call them annoying things, into substantially sized copper plates using one of the hardest artistic techniques that there is yeah i mean all of the hardness all of that kind of stuff copper and it's difficult medicine uh-huh. is just a way of attracting your attention okay as i understand it all of your prints so far have been of endangered moths or common moths but they exist they're extant moths yes what, what moths yeah mice in, uh, in the myths. atmosphere myths. <laughs> have you done any extinct moths yeah this, this most recent work so the culmination of the cambridge residency is a moth that has recently become extinct from these islands this is the border gothic this is the border gothic i look forward to seeing it yeah you will see the border gothic second question 
Um, who is your natural history slash art history, if you should you like a hero? Oh dear. <laughs> That's really hard to answer. Probably Filippo Lippi, somebody like that. Why? Who? What? Fra Filippo Lippi, because of the devotional nature of their work. Um, we haven't talked about Annunciations, but there's a there's a painting in the in the National Gallery of his his Annunciation painting, which I has obsessed me for years because Annunciations are a really interesting thing. So they are a male view of a, a mythological supernatural mm-hmm. event, but there's there there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Annunciation paintings, and it's always intrigued. This me. is the arrival of this is the arrival of the angel Gabriel yeah. to to inform the Virgin Mary, who is a in, the, in a contemplative, reclusive sp- indoor space, and he always comes from the, or he, it's an angel, so mm-hmm. it's a genderless being, winged being, comes from the outdoor and tells her, um, you know, that she's going to, she's been chosen to have the baby Jesus. It's all, all that kind of stuff, but it, you use the word inspiration, but what I've always found very interesting about that image is one, this, the state of readiness of Mary. This absolute state, which I think is key for artists, and again goes somewhat against this idea of this sort of artist that bestrides the world and goes out and seizes it. What if instead the artist is somebody who waits and is very, very still? And this arrival of something quite miraculous. And they're always presented in the same way. So the angel Gabriel comes from the left and Mary sits on the right and there is often a dove or a swallow mm-hmm. to represent the spirit. Yeah. What if you spun that whole scene through, what would it be, 90 degrees, 180 degrees, you can tell I'm no mathematician. On a vertical axis, you're flipping it. You're flipping it. Yeah. So that you see it from the point of view of the Virgin Mary. So what did she see when that happened? And that just that moment of what happens, what if you turn it through the 90 degrees, what did she see has always kind of intrigued me. And I think that we experience that. I think we all experience it. No, that's not the kind of the just the territory for artists we all experience that at odd moments in in our lives in the, when we're outside you know you turn and you see something or you come round a corner uh-huh. or you're on the edge of something and you just have that moment it's usually so transitory and you afterwards think i can't describe that did that happen when you do your moths do you choose a perspective you go top down moths head at the top at the bottom yeah and this the symmetry is almost overwhelming and the symmetry is there for a very good reason uh-huh. So you know this thing about if you turn a moth, if you look at a moth upside down, mm-hmm. it will look... Like how birds see it before they're about to, to come down. Nearly always looks like yeah. a small mammal. Yeah. If it doesn't look but like... They look like a tiger. They yeah. They look like they've got ears yeah. at the top and eyes at the... So some of them look deliberately like bird poo. Some <laughs> of them look like lichen. And some of them look like, you know, unbelievably like twigs and leaves. Yeah. And some of them look like small mammals. So that, that's... Yeah. I, I just got attracted. To, I mean, I just find the symmetry so compelling that... Uh, and also, I didn't want to make, I don't want to make wildlife paintings. I, I really, that was kind of like, I know I don't want to do that. So I didn't want to put them into naturalistic settings sure. or anything like that. Final question. Um, if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? Yeah, I heard you ask somebody else this and I thought about it and I thought, I think I'm going to stretch the brief there and say, I would love to bring back the hay meadows that I remember from my childhood and they are I know they're not a species no, and I know they're answer. not completely extinct but something like 93% gone in this country mm-hmm. the idea of a hay meadow that the cows were off from May till June that's wonderful 
Um, they do exist. They and do exist. Even more amazing. I went up to see one in the Conway Valley a few months ago, and it's the smell and the abundance of insect yeah. life and the yeah. the richness of biodiversity in a form that isn't as it was before humans, but was at a time when humans were integrated better into the biodiversical cycle of our country. Yeah. That was a good sentence, wasn't it? That was it? a great sentence. <laughs> Thank well, you very well, much. Well, we're not going to get rid of agriculture in this country. You know, we are not a farming island. When we've, got, we've got to find a way of making it less damaging. I suppose that's what I feel. Indeed. Sarah, thank you very much. That's wonderful. Thank you. I feel like I've yakked and hardly given you a word in edgeways. Not at all. A huge thank you to Sarah. I could have honestly spoken with her for hours, but alas, we do not always get what we want. But if you would like to see some of Sarah's moths, and I have no idea why you wouldn't, you can go and see her previous work and indeed her recent boarded gothic at the Rabley Gallery just outside Marlborough and in the David Attenborough Building in the University of Cambridge as part of the aforementioned Cambridge Conservation Initiative. Or indeed, you can find them on her website, a link for which can be found on ours, treesacrowd.fm, alongside further information about everything that we have spoken about today. And if, like Sarah, you long for a world brimming with the wildflower meadows of yesteryear, as chance would have it, our first Trees A Crowd of 2023 will be one recorded sitting in one such meadow. On the second Tuesday of 2023, you can hear me in conversation with both the truly inspirational botanist Dr Trevor Dines and his mini herd of Highland cattle. But until then, have a fantabulous winter break and a very, very happy new year. And I will see you next year. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 